This morning we're in Romans chapter 5. We made it. Chapter 5. And we're just going to zoom right through this like we've ever we've done every other time. So we're going to go through many messages, or many verses, I mean, verses 1 and 2 today. That's what we're going to go through. And I titled the message, Salvation Made Certain. Our salvation is made certain. It is guaranteed. It is the certainty of salvation. So we find ourselves now in a new section of the book of Romans. And before we read these verses, I just want to review a few things. Righteousness by faith has been the topic of discussion of the Apostle Paul through this time. How it was given to Abraham and given to all believers. And salvation, remember, comes through faith. To all believers through who? Through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now Paul dealt with all the arguments that could ever come against this great truth. He went through everything. And having dealt with all of it, he summarizes once more for us what this justification really means. And when we wrapped up chapter 4, we're told that all of it was written for who? For not only for them then, but all of us now. Remember with me in Romans 4, 23 through 25, as we back up a few verses, it says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Anyone who believes what Jesus has done and incorporates that into their life, as we have talked about through these messages, has the assurance of this great salvation if you appropriate it to your life. Now we're told one of the most common ways to divide up Romans, the entire book, is as follows. Chapters 1 through 4 is justification. Chapters 5 through 8, sanctification. Chapters 9 through 11, dealing with the Jews. And then after that, practical application in our lives and the rest of the book. That's the common way to divide it up. Now, Paul moves forward in this new section. And as we will see, he begins with that word, therefore. Right? In verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith. Therefore. In other words, Paul is getting ready to give us some conclusions here. Some conclusions he's coming to. Everything that has been proclaimed can lead us down a road of deductions. All of this great doctrine is leading to some conclusions. Some things that we can rest upon. Now, some have called verses 1 through 11, this section, some have called it the practical benefits of the gospel. And so when we look at these, they lead us to ask a question as we review all of this. And the question could be, so what? So what are all the benefits of justification in the believer's life? What does all of this bring to us? What do we get from it? What do we see from it? See, we didn't ask that question before because it was all about the Lord. And it always is, and it still is. And as He works in our lives and we receive benefits from it, 
that still glorifies the Lord. But it's good to see what these things bring for us through that. So verses 1 through 11, as we divide up these sections, it's traditionally taught this way in chapter 5. Verses 1 through 11 are taught as seven major blessings that every believer possesses. Now, not everyone agrees with this, of course. Some very anointed teachers give seven reasons. Some only give six. There are some that don't even discuss it at all. They kind of gloss over verses 1 through 11, and they move right into verse 12 because they want to deal with sanctification that deals with it from verse 12 of chapter 5 all the way through chapter 8. And in doing that, I believe, and it's been suggested, that we rob ourselves of some of the greatest blessings that justification provides. And so I don't want to glance over this portion. Because it's been pointed out that these blessings in verses 1 through 11, that the results of justification are secondary to the main point that's really being pointed out here. And what's that? What is the main point? I believe the Apostle Paul is setting out to prove the absolute finality of our salvation. In other words, the certainty, the guarantee, the divine assurance of salvation. Now, don't you want to know that? Don't you want to know how it's guaranteed to you? How we've talked about this reconciliation that He's given to us? And if He's given us this reconciliation, how do we keep it? Do we need to maintain it? I mean, all of these questions should begin to flood our minds. I heard a quote from a theology book, and it was said to read as follows. And I quote, Some truly converted people have fallen from grace, and the danger of doing so threatens every Christian. End quote. Now let me ask you a question. How important is that statement? That's from a theology book from a Protestant church. How important is that statement? It's very important. It's only important, though, if it's true. Is it true? We're going to look at that. If you and I are at risk of losing our salvation, if we are at risk, then we better know how to keep ourselves in the faith, right? If we are at risk, if that's a true statement. You see, when we begin to teach certainty of salvation, when we begin to teach in that fashion, there's all kinds of titles and definitions that begin to surface. What naturally begins to float to the top are words like eternal security. Oh, you're teaching eternal security. You begin to hear words like Calvinism and Arminianism and these topics have been debated in the church for centuries. It's nothing new. And you're never going to convince anybody otherwise. But man, I'm telling you, when you go through Romans, well, it opens up, and you do it correctly, it opens up a whole new world for the believer. See, not everybody believes in eternal security of the believer. Not everybody does. Nothing that I say is going to make any impact on the global church. These arguments will continue. I'm not going to change anything here. But we have to be careful when we become dogmatic. 
You see, in this fellowship, although I can't change any minds in the global church, in this fellowship that I've been placed over to shepherd, and to you and all those who listen to these messages for years to come, my desire is that we walk with confidence in knowing what we have. That's my heart. That's my desire. And whatever any other church believes, whatever it might be in this aspect of salvation, that's up to them. I cannot change it. Because accusations begin to fly. Oh, you're teaching this? You can't teach that. But when I go through this, I'm hoping that you will see what the Lord has shown to me as we walk through this. Now, some of you here have spoken to me about our series in Romans up to this point. Especially those of you with Catholic backgrounds, you've expressed to me how freeing this has been up to this point, and it has been. You didn't realize the depths that a works type of religion still had held you captive. Things that you didn't even know were still there. You shared that the Lord is still pulling things out. And you know that you have Christ, but you didn't know or realize there was more to surrender. And even those who, of us who've grown up in the church, we experienced the same thing. Through Romans, God's Word, in fact, has searched the depths of my own heart. It's challenged every aspect of my knowledge of salvation and faith, and it's been teaching me personally more clearly that the faith that I have, that I've always had, it's firming it up, and it's, it's encouraged me to drop all false securities and stand firmly on God's Word. Not that I wasn't doing that already, but it's teaching me these truths. It's unfolding these truths for me even more and more. Because all of my Christian life, believe it or not, I have been taught that salvation is free, yes, and it is God's grace, but I grew up believing that also, although salvation is free, maintenance of it isn't. That in some way, shape, or form, I have to abide in Christ and work for work to maintain it. I don't know if you've been taught that, but I've been taught that. And that's a common teaching in the Protestant church. In other words, I'm saved by grace, yes, but I must live in such a way to keep myself in it. And going through Romans in depth as we have has been so freeing for me. Not that I did not believe this before, but I didn't know all of that was still inside of me. Just being emptied of false securities and incorrect teaching that still resides within me. And it has a grip. It's as if a light has been shined on lasting truths that are unfolding for me and for you. And hopefully for you. And I want you and I to walk together with confidence in our salvation. That is my desire. Why? Because this is where the enemy, where Satan likes to attack us. Because this is the very heart of Christianity, our salvation and how we receive it and how the Lord maintains it for us. That is why the Bible tells us to do what? Put on the helmet of salvation. It is the element and the armor that protects our minds from doubt and from confusion. Why? Because Satan wants to throw devastating blows 
to our heads in the area of doubt. Have you discovered this? Oh yeah, everybody shakes their head. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And as Christians, we all go through it because that's where Satan attacks us the most. He wants us to doubt what we really have. He wants us to doubt our salvation. He wants us to doubt that we're redeemed. To doubt that the Lord is holding us in the palm of His hands forever. To doubt that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Oh, I sinned. I must not be saved anymore. He wants you to believe that in some way you have forfeited your redemption. And so what does He do? He throws devastating blows to the head. And He uses intimidation tactics so that you do not walk in assurance that you are really redeemed. Have you discovered this for yourself? Are there times you question, am I really saved? That could be a good question. But when we've gone through receiving Christ, as we have talked about through chapter 4 up to this point, if all of that has been imputed to you because you believe what Jesus has done for you and you've received it already, you can have assurance in salvation. And if we put our helmets on correctly, we can rest knowing that we are His how long? Forever. And as the enemy attempts to throw blows to the head, to the mind, we can stand firm, knowing that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Now, don't you want to know how that works? Don't you want to understand how this all works? You see, salvation, even in the Protestant church today, has in many ways become a works system. We differ in salvation than false religions and cults do, absolutely, because they're working their way to salvation. And we believe that it's a free gift because that's what the Bible teaches. But many have been brought up as Christians believing that after salvation, that we, not God, need to work to maintain it. I don't know about you, but I've been taught that way. Have you ever heard of this? I have seen it, I have heard it, and I have heard it taught. Therefore, with that reasoning, you would conclude that salvation can be what? Can be lost. Can salvation be lost? That salvation and sanctification has somehow become then a works system. And it makes it seem that salvation is conditional, doesn't it? That's not what the Bible teaches. In other words, your salvation is so good as long as you meet the conditions of maintenance. If I live up to the standards, then I can keep salvation. If I fail to live up to these standards, then I can lose it. And it really becomes a works kind of standard of salvation. Now Paul has been arguing in chapters 3 and 4 that this salvation is all of what? All of grace, unmerited favor, giving us something we don't deserve. And none of us deserve it. We've all been ungodly. But it's very hard for many of us to understand and comprehend this and wrap our heads around it. Very, very difficult. It's because we always want to do it. We have a bootstrap type of mentality. We want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and 
yes, we can, and we have a can-do attitude. That's what we're taught all of the time, but it doesn't work like that with the gospel. So all of this justification is by faith, and we have it, but there's maybe another question, another question that comes up. So Paul, if we have all of this given to us, how do we maintain it? Do we maintain it? What do we need to do to maintain and keep our salvation? And I believe that's the primary point that Paul is addressing here in chapter 5. As the Apostle Paul is listing the blessings. More importantly, he lists these great links that tie us to Jesus Christ forever. And that's what we're going to look at. So the blessings of the salvation, yes, are outlined for us in verses 1 through 11. But I believe, along with many giants of the faith, that this is the secondary point to the main point. The Apostle Paul is, tr is truly providing words of guaranteed salvation. And I understand fully that many are afraid to teach this way. Why? Because there is a fear of being uh, called or being told that you're teaching antinomianism. In other words, that if we are saved, we can live however we want and it doesn't matter. And it's just not true. What is equally concerning, however, is if we don't teach this, then we're teaching a works kind of walk with Jesus Christ. So how do you reconcile this? How do we wrap our heads around it? And i got to be honest with you, as we go through this, I'm not even certain I ex will explain it well enough. So we ask the Holy Spirit to really minister to our hearts. So if grace is not the key ingredient, there will be no freedom in my walk with Jesus Christ. I will always have a burden. I will always be wondering, oops, I just messed up. Did I lose it? Oops, I just messed up ten times. Did I lose it? How many times? That's what he's addressing. There are those who say that if you teach salvation by free grace, listen to this, then you are encouraging people to live recklessly. Now, is that true? That you're teaching Christians they could be saved and still live a life of sin. I don't believe that for a moment. I believe it's the exact opposite. Why? Because anyone has true faith will pursue a godly life as a result of salvation. And 1 John 3.3 says, And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. We have a longing desire to pursue the Lord, and it will be evidenced in your life. The person who says, I am right with God, therefore I can go on sinning, is not saved. Is not saved. You cannot be saved and say that. If you teach salvation by grace through faith, then what are you teaching? You're teaching repentance first if you're teaching it correctly. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul has been going through? This is what we've been discussing. You see, with repentance comes justification. And what is justification? Legal, right, standing with God. The verdict is in, final, decided. That's what you and I have as believers in Christ. 
than the nat- natural Christian desire through the working of the Holy Spirit is that you desire obedience. Not that we are always perfect in obedience, but that we desire it. We want to be perfected. And we go through this life of sanctification in that fashion, in that mindset. And then not an obedience to keep myself in Christ, an obedience that is God-given and God-empowered. Because it's the Holy Spirit who gives us the enablement to perform everything for Him. It's all Him. Therefore, He has done what? He has placed that obedience within me. And this is what an authentic faith produces. It's what it produces. You can so-called backslide for a while. I don't even know now if that is even a true thing. But the Lord will always pursue His own and bring you back. Always. Because His work is perfect. This is what the Apostle Paul is speaking of right here. That if you have truly accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you believe He died for your sins, was raised on the third day, ascended, is now making intercession for you, that is coming back for you to place you where He is, to be with Him forever, then your salvation is what? Complete. It's complete. Your salvation is assured. Your salvation is absolute and final. Not only that, there is nothing that can rob it from you, not even yourself. And the Apostle Paul explains that immediately in the first two verses of chapter 5. He just hits home right at the very top of it. And then in verses 3 through 5, those will explain to us that nothing will ever shake it from us. Oh, I can't wait for that. Then in verses 6 through 11, we see that salvation is absolutely final. Why? Because it's all based upon God, His love, His action, His maintenance, through the Holy Spirit. And we will deal with this much more through chapter 8. But here, and I have to do this, I, I, I believe the Apostle Paul is doing the same thing he does in chapter 8. And I can't wait to get there, but just as a little taste of it, Romans 8.30 says this, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also what? Glorified. Notice what it says here. Whom he justified, these he glorified. There's no mention of sanctification, which is part of our lives. But he goes right to glorification because he wants us to know where our final standing is. But Paul is emphasizing something just as he's doing here in verses 1 and 2. He's going immediately again from justification to glorification, from right standing to final standing, from beginning to end. And what is the point? Once you've received this, you are in it all the way, all the way through. Justification by faith does three things all at once as we begin to see it here. It puts us at peace with God. It puts us in the place of all blessings of God, and it enables us to look forward to glory. 
to rest with Him. So verse 1, let's look at it after that long introduction. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop right there. We have been justified. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that it is peace with God first, then blessings. Peace first, then blessings. Many today teach blessings first rather than peace with God, don't they? If you come to Jesus, He'll take all your cares away. He'll heal you physically. He'll heal you emotionally. He will heal your marriage. He'll heal your relationship. He'll get you that house or car that you've been praying for. Need money in the bank? Just ask the Lord. You want a friend? You want help? You want comfort? Jesus will give you all these things. But see, that's secondary. That's secondary. You cannot have those things until you have peace with God. Peace with God first, then blessings. That comes through repentance, then justification. You see, we teach this way because we do not prioritize and put things in the right order. We have to have peace with God first. We cannot have peace with God if He still considers us an enemy. What do you mean? An enemy? Was I ever an enemy of God? Yes, you were. And I was. Well, I didn't hate God. What do you mean I'm an enemy? No, but He hates sin. And He at one time hated you. Oh, we don't want to hear that. How in the world did He hate me? He can't look upon sin. He considered us an enemy at one point. Well, you say, I'm not an enemy of God. I never was an enemy of God. I mean, I believe that He existed. I always showed Him some honor, you know. But the fact of the matter is that God is at war with sin and at war with sinful man. 1 Corinthians 16.22 says, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. In other words, let him be assigned to eternal judgment in hell. Without Christ, we are God's enemies, whether we believe it or not. Ephesians 5.6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God, His full wrath. Revelation 19.15, when Jesus is, show return, is shown returning, says this, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. This is a God who's angry at what? At sin. At sin. At war with sinful and as with sinful man, and it will be dealt with. And everything summarized in this passage, Psalm 7:11. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Every single day. Now, am I saying that He doesn't love people and doesn't want to pursue them and draw them to Himself? Not at all. Why would He tell us then to go out and preach to every creature? 
No, he pursues, but against sin, against the wicked, there will be judgment. That is why we go. So if we have never accepted Christ and and expect blessings from Him, we've got it backwards. We've got it completely backwards. We cannot pray to God and ask Him to bless us without an entrance, can we? I mean, think about it. If I wanted to go see the President of the United States, I can't simply walk into the White House and expect to meet with Him. I need to gain an audience with Him. It'll never happen the other way. I have to gain admission into His presence. And we have to do the same thing with God. And who is the admission? Jesus Christ. That's how we gain admission. Otherwise, any prayer that I pray, do you know people that don't know Christ and they say things like, well, I'll pray about that, or hey, can you pray for me? Or They'll ask those questions, but their prayers, man, they hit the ceiling. They don't go anywhere because they haven't gained entrance. It is only through Christ that I gain access to peace and blessings of God. The prayer that he hears of an unholy, ungodly person is what? I surrender. I surrender to you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. He'll hear that prayer because the Holy Spirit is prompting it. John 9.31 says, When Jesus heals a blind man, he was accused, Jesus being accused of a sinner. He was accused of being a sinner. And it says this in John 9.31, Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, He hears Him. So the man that was healed in this story told the accusers that Jesus cannot be a sinner because He was healed. He had an audience with God. That's how we know. So before we can receive anything from the Lord, we must know what? We have to know our standing with Him. Every blessing begins with my standing with God, and then all the blessings follow. So the chief purpose of the Christian gospel is not to give men blessings. What's its primary function? Its primary business is to bring us to God, and that is first, and that is primary. Now, if you look at your Bibles, I don't know what yours says, but at the bottom, there might be a footnote in the bottom that says, Another ancient reading is, let us have peace. It might say that in yours, it says it in mine. This makes it out to be some kind of controversy between the two comments. But in reality, this is really not a problem, and it's easily resolved. The Apostle Paul is not saying we need to get to that place of having peace. He is clearly saying that having been justified, we do have this peace. We have it right now. This is not an exhortation to gain peace. It's a statement telling us we have it. And what is the opposite of peace? What's the opposite of peace? The opposite of peace is war. And you and I, again, were once enemies at war with the Lord. And now, after we've accepted Christ, we are at peace. I like this comment. It says, The war is over. Hostilities have ceased. Through the work of Christ, 
All causes of enmity between our souls and God have been removed. We have been changed from foes to friends by a miracle of grace, end quote. To say it differently, we do not work towards peace. It's ours right now through grace. Whether you know it or not, you have Christ, you're at peace with Him. No longer an enemy, an heir. And we have peace with God. Listen, we have peace with God, not the peace of God. Those are two different thoughts. We have both, yes, but they're two different thoughts. We have peace with God, not the peace of God. Listen, Philippians 4, 7, we know it well. What does it tell us? Be anxious for nothing. You can repeat it with me. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now this peace of God that surpasses all understanding is dealing with what? It's dealing with the situations of life. Situations in life that bring us anxiety, that bring us worry, that bring us trouble. And in those times, we can experience a peace that helps us deal with extreme circumstances. And we as believers in Jesus Christ can experience times like this in our lives. But here the Apostle Paul is talking about a different peace. You see, that's to help us through things. That's the peace of God. But he's talking about the peace with God. See, it's not a question of how I feel. It's a question of what I know. The question is not, how do I stand during times of difficulty in this life? The question here is, how do I stand before God in the next life? What is my standing with God right here and right now? Am I at war with Him or am I at peace with Him? And I can never have the peace of God unless I have the peace with God. And that answer can only come one way. Again, through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we cannot say that too much, can we? Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. How can we have this peace? Because God placed His full wrath on His Son and not us. He's the propitiation. He's the substitute. He took it all. Colossians 1, 20-22 says, And by Him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has what reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. You hear that? Where He's placed you? Above reproach in His sight. What does this reconciliation with God bring? No longer an enemy. It brings peace with God. I like what MacArthur writes. He says, The act of Jesus Christ so fully accomplished peace with God that from now on forever you are holy, listen, unblameable, unreprovable in His sight. Why? Because every sin you should have been punished for Christ, 
he bore it. End quote. Isn't it good to know that in Jesus Christ, we have escaped war and judgment with God? You've escaped it. You and I, we've escaped it. And everything is ours because of who? Because Jesus. All of it. Everything that we've been talking about. Listen, Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So we have been reconciled with God through this great salvation, and we have peace. Now we say, well, that's all great and wonderful, but what will keep us in this? Is there anything else we need to do after this reconciliation? Isn't that just like us? Okay, it's free grace, and we struggle with that. And now we have it. What do we do to keep it? There goes the bootstraps again. We want to do something. See, not only did Jesus reconcile us to God, but listen to this. He maintains that reconciliation. Did you know that that is Jesus' high priestly work? He keeps on cleansing as 1 John tells us. Read 1 John. It tells us that He keeps on cleansing us from all of our sins. He maintains it. William MacDonald writes, All God's forgiveness is based on the blood of His Son that was shed at Calvary. That blood provided God with a righteous basis on which He can forgive sins. And as we sing, the blood will never lose its power. It has lasting efficacy to cleanse us. End quote. Conversion does not mean the eradication of the sin nature, does it? It means the implanting of the new divine nature with power to live victoriously over indwelling sin. And let me tell you something, that is the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's His power. So we have this tr these tremendous truths here that can be difficult to understand at times. On the one hand, we have the reconciliation that gives us peace with God forever. Why? Because there's nothing that will violate what we have been given. The Bible clearly teaches us that. It tells us that our sins have been washed away for a minute. No, forever. Then we have that wonderful truth about our daily walk with the Lord. And what is that? That He keeps on cleansing us of our sins. So we are reconciled to God not only by past sins being put away, we are reconciled also by the continual present maintaining as He makes intercession for us at the right hand of God. And He intercedes for us for how long? How long does He intercede for us? For as long as He lives. And how long does Jesus live? Forever. What a great truth. Listen, Hebrews 8.12 For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. No more. For anyone to say that you can lose your salvation is to say the following. Now listen. It's to say that Jesus' work on the cross for reconciliation was insufficient. It can give me reconciliation, but it can't keep me. It's to say His high priestly duty of 
forever making intercession for me is also insufficient. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to claim that. I don't want to make that proclamation. I can't. Someone says, well, I sinned today, and how can it be that he will continue to forgive me? Because 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we are commanded to do that constantly. When we confess our sins, we must believe on the authority of the word of God. And what is that? that He forgives us. It tells us right here. And if He forgives us, then what must we be willing to do ourselves? Forgive ourselves. We have to forgive ourselves. Do you find yourself condemning yourself all the time? Listen, there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. When we confess our sins, we must stand on that. We have this peace with God reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that blood not only has the power to save, but also to maintain. Listen, it gets even better. Verse 2. That's just having peace with God. Listen to this. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. He says, through whom? Through whom? Through Jesus Christ. And what do we have now? We have access. See, this, acts, this word access means a privilege of approach to a person of high rank. In other words, we receive through this grace, through Jesus Christ, the, the privilege of approaching God. The veil has been torn. We have the privilege of receiving God's grace through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, besides being the agent of the believer's enjoyment of peace with God, is also the one through whom we have gained access. And now we not only have this peace with God, but check this out. We are now, what? Standing in grace. This is amazing. We're standing in it. Now listen, if you're standing in something, are you moving in and out of it? Are you moving back and forth from it? No, you're standing in it. So the Lord saves us by grace that we had nothing to do with and that we are in. And once we are in, now we stand in grace before the Lord. And again, remember what is grace? It's something we do not deserve. So I'm not constantly going back and forth, losing my salvation, then gaining it back, then losing it, then gaining it back. I stand in grace. It gets even better. So we're saved by grace, unmerited favor given to us, but we're not saved by grace and then maintained in it by works, by law. This is to say that I was saved by it, and now I break the law and God says, you're out. You're out. I never want to see that from you again. You're done. You had your chance. You accepted me. Oh, but you messed up. Now you're out. How many times do we have to do that? You had my peace, but now we're at war again. No. You are in the environment of grace. 
Listen, Jude 1, 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Christ's priestly works helps us to stand in grace, in continual, unmerited, righteous standing. We are in His grace. We are in safe, eternal custody. Oh, you can't teach that. Yes, I can. This is what the Bible teaches. Grace, listen. Here's where it gets really interesting. And it just melts my heart. When can grace function? Grace can only function where there is failure. Grace only functions when there's failure, where there is sin. That's a great truth. That is a great truth. Romans 5.20 Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded how much? Much more. Much more. And when we stand in grace, when we sin, this grace functions. And guess what that function is? We are continually in a state of grace. Oh my gosh, there's nothing that can take this from us. There's nothing that can take us out of it. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Romans 5.10 again. For if when we were enemies, listen, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. In other words, if Jesus dying brought us into a relationship with God, don't you think that Jesus living can keep us in it? If a dead Savior saved me, how much more can a live, living Savior keep me? Just as Jesus told Peter, remember, Peter, Satan has asked for you, my brother, but I've prayed for you. And guess what? You're going to make it through. You're going to come out on top. Man, is that not what he does for us? This is his high priestly duty to keep us. And for me to teach anything else would nullify this fact. And it would put the maintenance of my salvation on who? On me. And it would glorify me. And that would be wrong. 2 Timothy 1.12 says, For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Does it get any clearer? Yes, it does. Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. By what will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all? And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he was perfected forever, those who are being sanctified. Jesus' high priestly duty is continual. He doesn't stop it. It's continual. Oh, there's some great truths. Let me bring this to a close. Romans 8, 
31 through 32. And, and I have to share this with you. I can't keep it until we get to Romans 8. I have to bring it in right here. And then we'll get to review it again. But Romans 8, 31 through 32. Listen. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, nobody is greater than God, and nobody can be against him. So how can this God, who is for us, gave us his best, his son to save us, how would he not give us his best to keep us? And he does, doesn't he? He gives us all things. And it doesn't stop there. Romans 8, 33 and 34, he goes on. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. In other words, listen, who is going to indict me? The judge who already gave me his verdict? Is he going to now take that verdict back? Is he going to change his mind about me? I would change my mind about me, but is he? The verdict is in. And who's going to condemn me? Listen, the attorney that already defended me, he's going to condemn me again? If God gave me his best gift to save me, is he now going to give me a lesser gift and not keep me? Not at all. Not at all. He finishes what he starts, doesn't he? That's what the Bible clearly tells us. So this peace with God and righteous right standing is then on what? Firm, solid ground, never to be shaken. And this is just the first two verses. It goes even deeper. And that is all of his work and his part. And what's our part? To abide in him. And check this out. The abiding in him is the empowerment by him through the Holy Spirit to accomplish what he wants us to do. All him. So to deny all of this grace, and this is where we'll close, is to say that God cannot save eternally, that he changed his verdict, that he went back on his word. It is to say that Jesus Christ does not have the power to keep us and make intercession for us, and it denies his high priestly duty. And it is to say that the Holy Spirit does not empower us to live a life of obedience, all of which are contrary to what the Word of God really says, and all of which are a complete and utter denial of the Holy Trinity and the duties of all of their offices. Now do you know what you have? Now do you know how you're justified? Now do you know you are in right standing with our Father? No longer an enemy. At peace. And that peace lasts how long? Forever. Is this something that you want? It's what I want. It's what I have. Do you have it? We have it. It's so good. Do we even need to go any further? I mean, we could just wrap it up right here, don't you think? No, it gets better. 
See, this is what I want Surrender Church to know. Where you are with God. You are in right standing. Live your Christian life with joy in knowing that, oh, we have troubles, yes. And we'll have peace through that. But know this, you always, always have peace with God. You are no longer an enemy and don't let anybody ever tell you any different. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these amazing truths once again. We stand in grace. And I am so grateful for that, Lord. We have, we have challenging times in our lives. And Lord, we're so grateful and thankful that all through them, Lord, we can have the peace that surpasses all understanding. But it comes first with knowing that we have peace with you, that we are no longer enemies. And Jesus, thank you for your high priestly duty of keeping us and maintaining us through the blood, the power of that blood. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for helping us. You are our helper. Empower us to live a life of obedience. And we thank you that when we fail, you've forgiven us of all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you keep on cleansing us. We praise and thank you now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll have one more song.